Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you on this beautiful Lord's Day. Please have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 18. We'll begin reading there in just a moment. I have had such a wonderful worship thus far. Brian's lesson, Mitch's class, the songs, the prayers. So good to be with you. Uh, thank you for owning me, Jason. Thank you for loving me. Uh, I love you right back, and it's just so good to, to see everybody once again. I want to share with you a lesson that I did uh, very recently at the Valley Congregation about valuing the children, just how much God values their spiritual protection, and then imitating that towards our, our children, not only our own kids, but the children that we that you all have at, at Monta Vista. Let's begin reading, and we'll just read the entire narrative. You can get comfortable. You can throw a marker here. We're not going to turn away from Matthew chapter 18. We're going to read the first 14 verses. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes." If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So the disciples asked, they had the guts to ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I am always surprised that Jesus even answered questions like that. With me and my patience being as thin as it is, I think I would have told them, if you're asking, it's not you. Get out of here. But he didn't answer it like that. He truly wanted them to have the correct definition about greatness. And Before we talk about what he did with the child, that's really how he's going to answer this question by illustrating just how their definition was incorrect about greatness. When the apostles thought about greatness, what they're thinking is, who's the boss? Who's in charge? Who's got the authority? And if they've got the authority, if they're the boss, then clearly they're great. That was their definition. Jesus' definition, though, was who's humble, who's childlike, and what's yours? Is your definition of greatness more like Jesus, or is your definition of greatness more like the apostles? Mark's account actually tells it a little different, that Jesus 
actually brought it up to them by asking them, what were you guys discussing on the way? So which is it? Did the disciples ask or did Jesus ask them? And of course, we know that it has to be both. The way I envision it in my mind is that the disciples come up to Jesus and ask, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And to illustrate that he knew what they were talking about, he responded by saying, so what were you guys talking about? Tell me. Some of the conversations that we have privately are maybe an embarrassment, but Jesus didn't embarrass them. He wanted them to know. So what does he do? He calls a child, puts the child in the midst. Mark's account actually says he took this child in his arms. You and I both know if you can take a child in your arms, they're young, they're, they're innocent. He takes this child in his arms and I had almost forgotten until recently, there are two statements about children here, and one of them has nothing to do with the question at hand. The question at hand is, who's the greatest in the kingdom? But what he says first about children is, you got to get into the kingdom at all if you're going to be great in the kingdom. So he first says something general about children. Unless you become like children in general, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Has it ever surprised you or gotten your attention that Jesus is preaching the necessity of childlike characteristics as much as Jesus preached the necessity of baptism? Has that ever caught your attention? Let me say that again. Jesus is preaching the necessity of becoming like a child just as strongly as he is preaching the necessity of baptism. And the reason why I'm putting it that way is because you know the nighttime meeting with Nicodemus, how that ended up. In John chapter 3, a passage that we study all the time, I'm sure, Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God that is nearly the same exact language that he is telling his apostles about becoming like children. Has that ever gotten your attention? Let me say it like this. When we talk about the steps of salvation, hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, being baptized, living faithfully, when we talk about the steps of salvation, when's the last time you heard anybody say, now here's a step, you must become like a child if you're going to be saved. You must become like a child if you're ever going to see the kingdom of, of, of God, of heaven. When have we ever heard somebody say it like that? I heard one lady say it like that. I won't give her name for embarrassment. I, I'll, I'll keep her name protected. But I actually know of a sister in Christ who read the New Testament and listed off everything about forgiveness, entering the kingdom, reconciliation, being saved. She just listed them off, and it was just pages and pages. And she had this on, on her list. I'm okay talking about the steps of salvation in terms of hearing, believing, repenting, confessing. I don't want anybody to think that I'm a false teacher. I don't want you to hurt me after services or anything. You know I've talked about those things in the past here in this congregation. But when we limit the obedience of the gospel to just a list of steps... We forget to preach with power some of the things that Jesus preached with power, and this being one of them. So I'm throwing myself in this mix to just 
challenge yourself to talk about salvation as strongly in these areas as we do others. Okay, that was a sidetrack. That had nothing to do with the question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of, of heaven? And Jesus said, well, you got to get in first. You got to become like children. And then the second statement is this. It's, very, it's, it's a lot more specific. It was about that child that he had held in his arms. Unless one becomes like this child, not children in general, like the first statement, unless one becomes like this child, they won't be great. Or if you become like this child, they will be great. It makes me wonder if that child, and we don't know, but I'm just wondering, makes me wonder if that child had done something humble in and around the audience, uh, the disciples or whatever, that was going underappreciated, under-recognized, just thought of as, that's, that's just what kids do. And Jesus specifically honed in on this child and said, bring me that one. What am I saying? Well, let me give you an example of what I think is, is, is childlike characteristics. And we don't, again, we don't know, but the principle certainly applies to childlike characteristics. You know, Vera and I have four kids, and they range now from four to ten. Okay, I know it's been about a year since we've been away, a year and a half or so. We don't have more than four. Okay, I think we're done. <laughs> Still have four. From four to ten, which means they are at the age of doing chores. Yeah! <laughs> That's not lost on Vera and I. If you could listen to us in our home, we are constantly sending our four kids on little errands. And when I say little, I mean little, like go, go, go grab a, a drink of water for mom. Go grab me a cup of water from the, from the fridge. Go grab me an apple from the fridge. Grab your sister's lunch boxes. Uh, grab, your, grab your backpacks. Put the shoes away. Go downstairs. Clean up. Clean your room. Boom, boom, boom. I promise you we have fun with our kids too. Okay, We're not just tyrant parents. But because they're not teenagers, they actually obey. Uh, don't, 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 don't. Okay, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I know you always obey too. But you know, they just do it without ever griping. They don't ever say, why do I have to get the lunch boxes? They don't ever do it just to get praise. They do appreciate it when we praise them. They do appreciate it when we thank them. But they're not doing it for the attention like sometimes we do in the Lord's church when we do good works. We're kind of looking for that attention a little bit. They don't do it for those reasons. And what I'm saying is, is it possible that, that Jesus is seeing this little child do something, getting bossed around, if you will, grab your mom's stuff, grab this bag over here, do this over here, and they're just, you know, that's what kids do. They're supposed to. And Jesus hones in on this child and says, bring, bring, him, bring him here. Now, we don't know, but I will say this. The heartbeat of a congregation is Christians running around and doing spiritual errands. The heartbeat of a congregation does not revolve what we do here on Sundays. The heartbeat of a congregation is individual Christians in their individual private lives, privately encouraging, privately lifting people up, privately being like Jesus. That is the heartbeat of a congregation. And it's the heartbeat of greatness, of humility. Okay. So here, here's really where the sermon begins and why I put this together at all. I said that there was two statements about children, unless you become like children in general, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then we've got to become like that child that he was holding, humble, if we're going to be great. Can I change it to three? And this statement, later on in the context, I really haven't ever applied to just children, but I want you to now. Look at verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Whenever I've taught this passage, Matthew 18, from a Bible class or preached, I've always looked at verse 6 and really just applied it to adult Christians tripping up other adult Christians or adult Christians tripping up people in the world. But adults tripping up adults. In the, in the context, in its strictest context, there's no indication that Jesus is talking to a different group of people. There's no indication that Jesus is speaking at a different location. There's no indication that this child has ever left his arms. So when he says, whoever, receive, or whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, I think Jesus is talking about tripping up, being a stumbling block to kids. And if that's who you are, you are free to leave this congregation. And you're not welcome at Valley either. Now, you might be saying, how could you say such a thing? I said it a lot lighter than Jesus did. Didn't I? Jesus said, it'd be better if you died a horrific death. Apply it to children. Do you see, beloved, how deadly serious we need to take the spiritual protection of our children? Here's another verse I've never really applied to kids, but look at verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. It's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Again, and I, and I realize, I wouldn't say that anybody's you know, teaching it in a wrong way if they made this applicable to adults. Because he does talk about, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, if your foot causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin. So these principles do apply to adults. But when Jesus says in verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin, again, there's no indication he's talking to a different audience in a different location. There's no indication that that child in his arms has left his arms. It's very possible that what Jesus is talking about, he is lamenting that children have to lose their innocence at all. Parents, let me ask you something, just to illustrate what I think Jesus is feeling here. Have you ever been angered when you think about how ungodly the world is? You think about grandparents, I know it's you too. You think about how depraved the world is, and you know that it's going to get to your children at some point. It's going to affect them at some point. And so have you ever thought about how lost this world is, how ungodly, how depraved it is, knew that it was going to get to your children, and you just were upset about it, righteously angered? I think that's exactly what Jesus is feeling. Woe to the world! It's going to get to the kids. That's the greatest, that's the strictest context. Woe to the world. I know it's got to come, Jesus says, but it doesn't have to come from you or me. So I said there was three statements about children. Can I change it to four? Look at verse 10. 
See that you do not despise one of these little ones. And then he tells the story about leaving the 99 sheep and then going and saving the one. I have never applied that to children, but I think that's what he's talking about. And, and, and if he just lamented the children losing their innocence at, at some point, if he just talked about being a stumbling block to the children, wouldn't you expect Jesus talking about their salvation? If they're, going to be stumb if, if they're going to experience a stumbling block, if they're going to falter at some point, if they're going to be tempted in sin at some point, wouldn't it make sense that he would follow it up with talking about sacrificing for their spiritual benefit? That he would leave the 99, not just for adults, but he would leave the 99 and go save the one, the child, the children. He'll sacrifice for their spiritual benefit. Will I? Will you? So I said there was four. Let's go over them one more time. Unless you become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become like that child specifically, you'll never be great. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better if they died. Horrific death. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. God will sacrifice for their spiritual benefit. Can I change it to five? Look at verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. There's no indication that he's talking to a different group of people. No indication that he's preaching at a different location. There's no indication that that child has ever left his arms. In fact, I can hear, I, I can almost see Jesus looking at the child. Guys, it's not the will of my father. One of these little ones should perish. Monta Vista, that's how you need to treat your children. And I know you do. But I hope it's a good reminder. When I used to hear that, that the children were the future of the church when I was their age. You know, I, I remember hearing statements like that as early as probably 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. I used to brush it off and just think, oh, yeah, future of the church. Now that I'm an adult and I look at the landscape of the church, just, just think about your deacons for a moment. Think about the deacons' wives. How many of them were just converted out of the world, had no, had no connection with the church, the Lord's church at all, from the time that they were kids? How many? Think about your shepherds and your shepherds' wives. How many? I, I know some, but when I think about the leadership you know, in the churches that I'm, I'm familiar with, Tucson, Phoenix, Prescott, it's like 95% of people who had a connection when they were children to the Lord's church. So when I say that the future of the church is the children, don't brush that off like I used to. That's a fact. That, that's the way it's played out in my generation. Let's get out our songbooks, turn to the Song of Invitation. 
One last thought. Sacrificing for our kids, and you know that I'm talking about spiritual sacrifices. I'm not talking about food and clothing and shelter. I'm not talking about college tuition. Because atheists, unbelievers, they'll do that. That's a joke. I'm talking about sacrifices to teach them, to sing with them, to pray with them, to do everything in your power to make sure that you have ingrained the Word of God in them. Whose feet has God laid that primary responsibility at the feet of? Dads. If you're subject to the gospel call, we bid you to come. As together we stand and sing.